0: Hello, it's Amber here and welcome back to Panam, a podcast that turns back time to explore the unusual history of Paris. So come with me as we delve into the urban legend of the immortal clockmaker. Cité Cité Today we're going to be exploring an urban legend about an immortal clockmaker, sounds fascinating already, and use it as a springboard to discover more about time and timekeeping around Paris. So let's find out a little bit more. I've brought us over to number 10, rue grand Grandigret, well, although sometimes it is written that it was at number 10, rue Maitre Albert. It doesn't matter because they're just next to each other and they're both in the 5th arrondissement. Now apparently, sometime around 1465, so 15th century, an exceptional clockmaker once lived and worked. And this is... Quite interesting considering that on Rue Maître Albert, which we learnt about last time, Maître Albert, Albert the great the great philosopher, apparently lived and worked while he was looking for the so-called uh, philosopher's stone, you know, the ability to turn base metals into gold and live forever. Well, he wasn't the only one because his neighbour, although much later, apparently found the solution. So the story tells of an enigmatic and mysterious clockmaker who comes somewhere from the Orient, uh, possibly Egypt. And his story was that he had apparently fled his home, changed his religion and his name. So he's a complete mystery. No one knows where he's from or what his real name is. The name he chooses is Oswald Bieber. And this is a great name because Bieber means beaver. Why is that a great name, Amber? Good question, guys. It's because Biev which used to be a river running just next to this um, neighbourhood. In fact, there's still a street called the Rubiev, also means Beaver. So this was a river which would go flowing down into the Seine. Today there's no river, it's been paved over, which apparently is no bad thing because it was pretty polluted and filthy. So, back to the story. Oswald Bieber, Monsieur Bieber, owned a little clock-making shop. Um, And although he'd been there for many years, he never seemed to age, surprisingly. And even though his shop was very small and was back then in the 15th century situated in a rather less than salubrious neighbourhood, his fine workmanship quickly attracted wealthy clients. After all, in the 15th century, really only wealthy people could afford to have their own clock. Now, in Paris, most people would rely on sundials to tell the time And there are a surprising number of sundials in Paris. But Paris, not being the sunniest of places, they would often also use churches, or at least the church bells, to tell the time, as they would ring on the hour. The French word for bell is cloche, which is quite like the word clock there was also at this time at least one real clock for Parisians which can still be seen in its original location if not in its original form. It's considered Paris's oldest surviving clock as it was built in 1371. It's situated on the Ile de la Cité on the clock tower of the conciergerie. Now The conciergerie was originally a royal palace, but it was converted into a prison in the 15th century. It was here that Marie Antoinette, along with many others, was held during the revolution before her execution. And you can even visit her cell today. King Charles V, so that's the king who extended the Philippe Auguste walls around Paris, and he was also known as the Wise, ordered that the clock be made for Parisians. However, the beautiful gilded clock you can see today looks remarkably different to the original 14th century one. A couple of hundred years after it was first put in place, it was modernised. And then again in the 16th century, much building was going on and Paris was in the grip of the Renaissance and it's again updated. Notably, two sculptures were added to each side of the clock, one representing justice and the other law, which to be fair is pretty suitable considering that these are the law courts and the prisons. A few hundred years later, in 1849, another restoration took place. And this was partly due to the damage that the clock had undergone during the revolution. In the revolution, the two sculptures had been ripped down, so they needed to be replaced. It was also during this restoration that the timekeeping mechanism was updated. And amazingly, this is still the same one which is being used today. So it's still ticking away after 164 years. So this was perhaps the only clock that Parisians were using back in the 14th century. No one at that time would have had a wristwatch as the technology for them didn't appear until the 16th century. And even portable clocks, like the one our clockmaker is making, were not really around until the 15th century. So you can see they were pretty rare and and quite a luxury. Now let us get back to our little shop in the 5th, just meters away from Notre Dame the beautiful and unusual timepieces that monsieur bieber made had one peculiarity their hands went anti-clockwise instead of clockwise in other words they turned backwards and in doing so they turned time back for whoever owned the clock and had their name engraved upon it it wasn't noticeable at first, but slowly it was remarked upon that Monsieur Bieber's clients seemed to be all in very good form. Indeed, they seemed, if anything, to be getting younger as time went by, while on the other hand, their friends and peers aged and grew old and even died. Mm. As you can imagine, the wealthy few who had bought a clock were over the moon to see themselves regenerate and get younger, outliving their friends and foes alike, finding renewed pleasure in activities they'd once been too old to enjoy. But slowly, realisation dawned on them. If they continued to get younger, well, what would become of them? Would they become a baby? And what then? And it was all very well being 20, but how do you manage a business if you're a child? Stay married? Finding a wife may be one thing when you're a young man, but a teenager? Really, no one wants to be a teenager twice. And so one day these select few got together to see the clockmaker and ask that he stop their clocks. But alas, he said, it was impossible. He couldn't. Since, by rights, most of them should have been dead long ago, if he stopped their clocks they would instantly return to the stage that they should be at. In other words, dead. How then, they asked, is it possible that you seem neither to age nor get any younger? He explained that it was because his clock was different to theirs. One day, the hands moved forward and the next day, back. You see, he said, when I was learning my trade, I went to Venice. And there I met a certain wise old clockmaker who had a clock just like mine that went forward And back with his name engraved upon it and he made one for me but just as he was about to teach me the secrets of how it worked troubles rose and I was obliged to flee for my life so I never learnt his secrets the old men grew angry and demanded that he do something but he said nothing could be done so they all left and went home to ponder their futures as it happened they all came to the same conclusion I wonder if you can guess what it would be. All made the same resolve, to sneak back into the house and steal the clockmaker's clock that went both forward and backward, erase his name and replace it with their own genius. Imagine their surprise then, when that night, upon breaking into the clockmaker's shop, they found the others already there. Of course, an argument broke out, and then a fight. And this group of old men in the bodies of young men, desperate to live forever, shouted, threw punches, kicked, bit each other. You know, general mayhem was happening. It being only a tiny shop, however, they ended up smashing and crashing about, knocking into the instruments and tools, and finally breaking the precious clock that they had all wanted so much. In an instant... They all turned to dust, including Monsieur Bieber, because as it turned out, his clock affected all the others. And with that one broken, none of them could work. I mean, that is a good story. I feel like I've heard it or a version of it before, but it is a nice story nonetheless. Anyway, over the years, other enigmatic strangers from far-frung places have also set up shop at number 10, and just like Monsieur Bieber, seem to stay unchanged for an unnaturally long time. Sadly, today, there's not a clockmaker to be found there. But even if there was, I wonder if you would be tempted. What would it be like to live forever? I'm not sure I would be. Because, you know, time and our lack thereof is what makes living so special. That's why we say things like Carpe Diem, you know, Seize the Day, YOLO, and all of those things. If we lived forever, things would change remarkably. Nonetheless, this search for immortality fascinates us. It crops up again and again in diverse forms, in lots of stories and legends like the immortal vampires who must drink the blood of the living to stay alive, or characters such as Dorian Gray, who made the terrible bargain and as a result must keep a portrait of himself in his attic, which slowly ages and decays while he stays youthful and fresh. At the heart of these stories, however, there is this dilemma as to whether anyone would really want to be immortal. There is a sense that living forever would be rather awful, or the price one would have to pay for immortality would be too high. How can you watch your friends age and die? Also, immortality really takes the zing out of life, rendering it boring or without excitement. Is there any rush to experience something if you can do it next year, or the year after, or a hundred years from now? People are notorious for not doing things that they can do at any time. How many of the people listening today have never visited something in their own town or country because, you know, it's not going anywhere, they can see it any time, but then you don't? Would immortality, like for Dorian, leave you jaded and blasé about life? I think it might. The Japanese have a concept which is often translated into the pathos of things. The fact that experiences, even beautiful or exciting, are tinged with sadness as they will not last. But you see, that doesn't take away from the experience, but rather adds to it, making it more intense or sweet as we know it will end. Apparently, on their deathbeds, it's said people regret most not spending their time wisely rather than their money. Now, nobody knows about spending time more than the makers of sundials. Let's move on and think about some of the timepieces in Paris. And I especially want to talk about sundials. Now, they can be found all over the world and they often have brilliant mottos written upon them. There is a whole Wikipedia page with some brilliant mottos. I'll put a link to it for you on the website. Some are very light-hearted, things like, I count only sunny hours, which is very sweet, or more sinister, like, all hours wound, the last one kills. Lots are obviously about not wasting time, things like, use the hours, don't count them, that sort of thing. Now, I like a sundial because they are beautiful and interesting and intricate, although really difficult to read. I find them personally very difficult to tell the time on strangely there are loads in Paris over a hundred and at least one book dedicated solely to them the problem with a sundial is that the sun is not always out and even when it is out sometimes a sundial is rendered useless because a building obscures the sun and plunges them into shade and they are of course completely useless at night However, I have discovered from my research that because of this, most sundials are either designed to be morning or afternoon dials. Of Paris's many, many sundials, there are few with some great mottos. In the courtyard of the Sorbonne, the sundial tells us, our days pass like a shadow. These are written in Latin, these expressions, but my Latin is too bad, so I'm just going to read the English. So our days pass like a shadow. In the Institut de France, it's written, Since your hours are short, it is to immortal works that you must devote them. Which must be a sort of nod to the immortals, the so-called people who work at the Académie Française. In the 6th, a sundial proclaims, uh, The sun governs all. While in the Marais, the Convent of Mercy tells us to enjoy life while it's still possible. Great mottos, right? Some are very light-hearted, such as the blue cockerel in the 18th. Quand tu sonneras, je chanterai. So, in French, I can say it. When you ring, I sing. The cockerel, of course, being a sort of timekeeper himself. My favourite sundial motto is perhaps the one found on the Île de la Cité. At the Palais de Justice, a sculpture of time with his scythe and justice with her sword and scales proclaims that our flees. Justice stays. Very apt indeed. Of these many sundials, some are tiny or obscure and some are huge, like the one found in the Jardin Emile Gallet in the 11th. This modern sundial was built in 1986 and it's one of the largest in Europe, several metres long. It's placed in a semicircle of 18 metres and surrounded by abstract sculptures representing different hours. In fact, you can find at least one sundial in every arrondissement of Paris except the 17th. I wonder why the 17th doesn't have one. If you haven't listened to my episode about the obelisk, then do go back and listen to that one, and then you will discover that the obelisk is by far the largest and the oldest sundial in Paris. In Egypt, obelisks were often used to tell the time, but they do have more sun there, so it was probably a good deal more useful. There are too many sundials in Paris to go through them all, and not all of them are interesting, Um, but I'll put up some pictures of the ones I like most on my website. Let's finish, however, with the most famous, if perhaps most overlooked one. At number 27, Rue Saint-Jacques, you can find a sundial in the shape of a scallop shell with a human-like face. That scallop shell, of course, because you know from Saint-Jacques, this is where the pilgrims would walk up the Rue Saint-Jacques to go on pilgrimage. Although this sundial is rarely in the sunshine, it wouldn't even matter if it was because it doesn't work. And this is not surprising when you consider who created it. A famous artist, most known for melting time, Salvador Dali. Look closely and you'll be able to see his signature on the sundial. Now, Dali seems to find time abstract or changeable. And in a way, he is right. What is time really? Twice a year, we think nothing of changing the clocks for no good reason, as far as I'm concerned, for daylight saving. And yet we're all okay with that. But people have been keen to plot time for thousands of years and there are all types of clocks to be found all around the world. Sundials, candle clocks, incense clocks, hourglasses, water clocks, star clocks, the astrolab. But why? Why do we need to know the time? And how accurate does that time have to be? In the past it was good enough to know more or less the time. It was useful for farmers to know how much sunlight they had and keep track of the year as to know when to bring in crops and, you know, other farm-type activities. Other than farmers, time is often important for religious reasons. You need what time to call people to prayer or for certain specific religious events. But the need for a clock and more accurate timekeeping only really becomes essential in an urban environment. Time becomes more precise and more integral to the smooth running of day-to-day life. You need to monitor the time people arrive at work, especially if you're paying them, how many hours someone's worked in order to pay them, deliveries, meetings, the times that shops open or shut when taxes should be paid. It goes on and on and on. Interestingly, however, time is not the same for everyone. Of course, we understand that. Noon, or midday according to the sun is not universal but depends where you are and this can change from town to town. So 12 noon in Paris is not exactly the same time as 12 noon say in Lyon and that's okay as long as everyone in Paris or Lyon is happy. If they all agree that 12 is 12 then life can carry on without any glitches. However the invention of the railways saw the need for standard time across the whole country. Once the railways were invented, it was no longer possible for it to be one time in Paris and another in Lyon. The whole country needed to share the same time. And luckily, there was already a system in place which had been used for years by the Navy. You see, in order for ships to sail around the world and conquer or discover or whatever it is they do, they need to navigate accurately. The ability to determine the exact position at sea means that ships could travel more directly, speedily and safely to their destinations. But how do they do this? Through the tracking of longitude, of course. Now, I understand in principle what they're getting at, but I must admit, I do find this pretty confusing. So stick with me, maybe you'll understand more. Galileo first realised, with the help of his new-fangled equipment, the telescope, that the moons of Jupiter are visible and can be seen at the same time from different points on Earth. He quickly realised that this was a potential means of finding longitude. In other words, if you're looking up at Jupiter's moons, you would not see them at the same time if you were, say, in Paris or Bangkok, but you would see them at the same time if you were in alignment with Paris, you know, above or below Paris, along the lines of longitude, so to speak. If you see what I mean. Do you see what I mean? It's confusing. It was quite a bit later, however, before longitude was finally established. The meridian is called the zero point, zero longitude. When the sun is directly over the meridian, it is 12 noon. And be you in Paris or Lyon, or in the middle of the Mediterranean, you can somehow work out the time and distance using this system. The Navy then graciously let the landlubbers borrow this system to use for their railways. Hurrah! Time confusion solved! Or nearly. Today, we refer to Greenwich Mean Time, or GMT. It's still widely used as the standard time against which all other time zones in the world are referenced. Paris is GMT plus one. Greenwich, in case you do not know, is in London. Britain, of course, is a great seafaring nation. But it's not the only one. For a long time, Paris had their own meridian, with the meridian running through Paris, of course, and they considered Paris to be point Zero. So who was right? In 1884, the International Meridian Conference decided that the Meridian Line running through Greenwich, rather than that running through Paris, would become the prime line. A blow for the French, who refused to accept this for ages. But ultimately, they were forced to reluctantly accept that London was longitude zero. But the Paris meridian is not forgotten. Astronomer François Arago was the man who plotted the French meridian. And then, in 1994, the city of Paris commissioned a Dutch conceptual artist, Jan Dibetz, to create a memorial to him. Dibbets came up with this great idea of setting 135 bronze medallions into the ground along the Parisian meridian. Sadly, some of them have been stolen, but you can still walk north to south along Paris and follow these discreet little discs. Look down on the ground and you might notice the Arago with an N and S north and south pointers engraved on them. You can find maps on the internet of where to look for them. I'll put a link on my website for you. Now, Since we're talking about meridians, let's go to another one which has caused quite a stir following the publication of Dan Brown's novel The Da Vinci Code. Within the huge church of Saint Sulpice you'll find a gnomon. This is the part of the sundial that casts the shadow. The word comes from the Greek, meaning one that knows or examines. In Sense Peace, the gnomon is built around a meridian line, which is strictly orientated along the north-south axis. It's represented by a brass line set in a strip of white marble on the floor of the church. This is not the Paris meridian, plotting longitude, but rather a means of accurately calculating the summer solstice, and by doing so, to more accurately calculate the correct date for Easter. Easter is a religious holiday that changes every year. It celebrates the Christian belief of Jesus Christ's resurrection. Easter falls on the first Sunday following the first ecclesiastical full moon that occurs on or after the day of the vernal equinox, if that makes sense to you. The death of Jesus occurred around the Jewish Passover, which is traditionally held on the first full moon following the vernal equinox hmm as the full moon can vary in each time zone the church said that they would use the 14th day of the lunar month instead and host easter day on the following sunday i mean it sounds complicated to explain i mean to work out it sounds even more complicated anyway once the date of the moon is known easter day and the easter holidays can be determined so, in Saint-Sulpice, a small opening on the south window essentially turned the church into a solar observatory. The sun would shine through this small little window and would mark the passage of the solar year. Summer solstice to winter, autumn epikinox to spring. But more than marking time, it also might have saved the church from the fierce revolutionaries. Following the revolution, churches were damaged and destroyed. But two pharmacists who lived in the parish interceded on behalf of the church and convinced the revolutionaries that it was a place of science and reason. And although, of course, it was looted and damaged during the revolution, it was perhaps saved because of this meridian. Today, you can still see written above the main entrance of the church Les Peuple français reconnaît les tr- supreme et immortel de l'âme, meaning that the French people acknowledged the supreme being and the immortal soul. So this was graffiti from the time of the revolution, changing the church to a place of science. But the revolutionaries did not just mess with churches and religion, but with time itself. Above Paris's oldest clock, back on the Ile de la Cite, a Latin inscription reads, This mechanism, which divides time into perfectly equal 12 hours, helps you to protect justice and defend the law. But who decided that there should be 12 hours in the day? The revolutionaries took time out from chopping off heads to remodel time itself. They wanted everything to be completely different, and a new epoch needs a new clock. If you head to the Music Carnavale, you will be able to see one of these very curious revolutionary clocks known as a decimal clock. Decimal time, as they called it, divided the day into 10 decimal hours. Each hour into 100 minutes and each minute into 100 seconds, instead of a 24-hour clock with 60 minutes each divided into 60 seconds. In other words, the day was now 10 hours long. This meant that each hour was, in fact, 144 old minutes, the decimal hours then divided into 100 minutes each 86.4 seconds. And does that sound complicated? Yes. Well, it was, which is probably why it lasted just 17 months. The system was not popular. It didn't seem practical or an easy change for people to make. The metric system, which the revolution also introduced, standardized weights and measures, and that worked fine. It was practical. It took getting used to. But we don't really need to know exactly how long something is or exactly how much it weighs on a daily basis. Just when you bake a cake or buy something from Ikea. But we do need to know the time all of the time. And it's much more important for our daily lives. Radically changing the time was just too hard for people to get used to. But it didn't stop there. The decimal time change was also complemented by the revolutionary calendar, which introduced a ten day week. This meant that in a ten day week you work nine days before having a day off. I can't help thinking that this was part of the reason that the decimal time was doomed to failure in France. You can mess with a lot in France, but days off here are sacred. France is surely the only secular country that celebrates all of the Catholic holidays. So in 1806, nobody complained when Napoleon brought back the old calendar and the revolutionary one quietly disappeared. Now, let's draw this podcast to a close with a discovery I have just made, which I find both delightful and a little sad. In the rather dull neighbourhood known as the Quartier d'Horloge, or the Clock District, which is just next to the Pompidou Centre, there is the most unusual clock you'll find in Paris. It's a pretty giant piece called The Defender of Time, and it was created by French artist Jacques Monastier in 1979. I'll put a link up to some of his other works, and it is well worth examining because they are really remarkable. He specialises in automation. Now, the Defender of Time shows a man standing on a large sort of rock with a sword in hand, and he fights off either a dragon, a rooster, or a crab on the hour. Except when at three times of day, he's attacked by all three animals. The animals represent the ground, the sky, and the sea, respectively. And during these attacks, there's even sound effects of the earth moving, or wind, or waves, which can be heard. Now, luckily, the man always wins. Hurrah! I mean, it sounds crazy. It looks completely crazy, but really, really cool. Sadly, however, the man doesn't really win because the clock has not been working since July the 1st, 2003. It's like some sort of terrible metaphor for time. Anyway, it's very beautiful, and I recommend that you check it out if you are ever in Paris and at least look at some pictures, and maybe our interest will spurn the government to invest some money and repair it thank you so much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. I hope to get more out very, very soon. I know I always say that, but for more information, do check out my website, panampodcast.com. You can follow me on Instagram or Facebook or all those useful things. And I love hearing your your messages and your feedback. So don't hesitate to get in contact. I hope to speak to you soon. Take care. Bye-bye.